The tragedy of the Pharisees is they studied the scripture and they thought that just studying the scripture somehow could provide a righteousness, a life that was pleasing to the Lord. And Jesus said, you're studying the scripture, but you're missing the meaning of the scripture. They bear witness of me. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we have moved into chapter 10, which is part of this letter that deals with the nation Israel. In the previous chapter, Dr. Brogy had shown how Israel had been God's chosen nation, and we looked at all that that implied. Now in chapter 10, we see Israel's rejection of the Messiah. And in the last section of our message entitled, Zealous But Rebellious, we'll see today that although the Israelites for the most part were religious, their reasons were not to glorify God, but rather to exalt themselves. Let's rejoin Pastor Brogy now as he explains Christ as the end of the law. Now by now, as we've been studying through Romans, you've been looking for little words, connective words, and the word four connects verse four to verse three. So it tells us in essence that the Jews did not connect the dots between Christ's righteousness and the Lord Jesus. Now what precisely does it mean when it says here, Christ is the end of the law? Well, clearly it cannot mean that God now has terminated the Old Testament law and it has no significance today. It cannot mean that because many of the uh, laws of the Old Testament are quoted in the New Testament and have full application for us today. We studied that truth in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, where Paul says, because we couldn't achieve a righteousness in ourselves, God sent Christ who died for us that we could be saved. And then he says in Romans 8, 4, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so to say that God's done with the law is sheer nonsense. Now, some of my reformed friends, not all of them, but some of my reform friends mean, they say, well, the end of the law mean, refers to Israel, who are the custodians of the law, and because they weren't faithful custodians, that God has done with the nation of Israel. But we saw that misinterprets all the Old Testament quotations in the ninth chapter. We saw that misinterpreted all the unconditional promises that God made to Abraham. We saw it contradict plain statements when God describes that he loves Israel with an eternal love, an everlasting love. He said that his commitment to them is fixed like the sun, moon, and the stars. And as long as the sun, moon, and the stars are in a fixed order, so I will be committed to Israel, Jeremiah 31. So we know it can't mean that, not to mention when we come to the 11th chapter, Paul will underscore that God's not done with the Jewish people. Now, just because they're Jewish doesn't mean they're saved, and we studied that. And if you don't know what that means, go back and listen. But what does it mean that Christ is the end of the law? I think he's simply reminding us that the law, here a, uh, uh, two words for the Old Testament, so to speak, that the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And the best interpreter of the law is Christ himself. So listen to what he said about the Old Testament law. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, the word fulfill play, uh, normally means to bring it to its intended meaning. 
So Paul's point is that Christ is the goal. Christ is the culmination of the law. All of the Old Testament types, all of the Old Testament ceremonies pointed to the Lord Jesus. Do you think it's by accident? Then when you look at the six feasts of Israel, six feasts that they celebrated every single year, that Christ died on Passover, that he was buried in the grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a picture of his sinlessness, that he was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, and that 50 days later on the Feast of Pentecost, God sent the Spirit. Now, all of those Old Testament types, all of the illustrations ultimately pointed to Christ. The prophecies and the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch, pointed to Christ. The writings, the Psalms, they all pointed to the Lord Jesus. And so he said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I'm bringing them to their intended meaning. Paul made a very similar statement to the Corinthians when he said, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Does that mean that we have to, on our own, become wise or holy or redeem ourselves in order to be saved? Of course not. Now, the Israelite in Paul's day said, of course it's true. But here he says, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and so forth. And here he says in Romans 10:4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, please note, just because he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law and fulfilled all of the types and all of the illustrations doesn't mean that you are automatically saved. Look at the last verse, the last word in verse 4. Circle it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not to the one who tries, not to the one who behaves, but to the one who believes. In the 1850s, there was a very famous missionary by the name of John G. Patton. He was a missionary to the Hebrides, New Hebrides Islands. I remember reading stories with my wife to our children when they were young with Child Evangelism Fellowship as they uh, recounted this man's life and his powerful ministry that he had with a native people. And uh, he, of course, went there to learn their language. And once he learned his language, his goal was to put the scriptures in their tongue. And as he came to the word faith or believe in the New Testament, he just couldn't seem to find a word in their language. And he kept asking the people, he said, what, what's your word for trust? What, what's your word for, for heart faith? He, he wanted to get past just intellectual knowledge to a heart trust, to a heart belief. And uh, they didn't really understand what he was saying. And he'd listen to their conversations. He was looking for the right words. And he just couldn't seem to find it. And one day he was on his knees begging God, God, I, I need to put your word in a, a format that they can understand it. And while he was on his knees, one of the natives came running in with a package. And he came into his hut and he sat down in that big soft chair and he went, and Patton said, what did you just do to that chair? He said, I didn't do anything to the chair. What did you just do to that chair? When you sat in it and you just put your full support and rest in, in, in it. And he gave him the word. And that's the word that he used to translate believe. And it's still used, his translation of the Bible in that language to this day. That's what faith is. When he says that Christ is the end of the law to all who believe, it's the person who says, I've quit trying 
and I have now trusted. I'm not trying to work my way to heaven. I've put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, these four verses, they are very important because they serve as an introduction to Romans chapter 10, as we will spend the next four or five weeks in them. But let's apply what we've learned so far today. Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, I learned from this passage of Scripture that an unsubmissive heart will keep you from a saving knowledge of Christ. An unsubmissive heart will keep you from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, we saw this morning how Paul incriminates his own people as being guilty when he says here in verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And I hope you did not miss it this morning, that not knowing was not simply a problem of a lack of information. It was a problem of the human heart. Now, some people would say, well, they just weren't elect, and that's why they didn't believe, and that's why they were lost. Now, God loved the Jewish people just like he loves you. Their problem was not that they suffered from a lack of information. Their problem was that they were rebellious. They were unsubmissive to that information. They had been entrusted, Romans 3 says, with the oracles of God, but they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. On one occasion in John chapter 7, Jesus made a fantastic statement. He's at a Jewish feast, and this verse has helped me so much in understanding why people sometimes respond negatively to the gospel. It's John seven seventeen. Jesus said this, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Jesus is saying, listen, you can know whether my teaching is from God if you are willing to do the Father's will. It's a very powerful statement. You see, some people never come to embrace the truth because they don't really want the truth. There are unrepentant rebels at heart, which is why Jesus said, unless you repent, unless you change your mind, you likewise will perish. And so if a person is not willing to embrace truth, then he will not understand truth. Take, for example, someone who's in some immoral sexual relationship. And you talk to them about the Savior of the world and what he's come to do, and they'll say, well, I'm not sure there's a God, or I'm not sure the Bible is true, or I'm not sure that there's any place called heaven or hell, and you just talk and you talk, and the problem is not a lack of apologetic, it's not a, a lack of defense, because there's a plethora of information that we can share with people to show that our faith is an intelligent faith. The problem is they don't want to subject themselves to God. The problem is, is that they love darkness more than the light. It's not that they don't know adultery is wrong. They know it's wrong. They know it's evil. They may have never read the Ten Commandments, but the law of God has been written in their hearts, Galatians 2.15. And the problem is, is that they're unwilling to face their sin. And if you're not willing to do the will of the Father, you will never, ever, ever know whether his teaching is sourced in himself, manufactured in Nazareth, or whether it was sourced in heaven. Why? Because the will of the Father for you is for you to receive Jesus as Lord. And if you're not even willing to be willing, don't ever expect God to reveal truth to you. But you know what I've learned over the years? I've said to many a person, I said to one Muslim this week, I said, look, would you be willing to go home 
and say, God, if Jesus Christ is your son, if he is indeed the savior of the world and I need him and he's greater than Allah, that he's not just a prophet, but he is indeed God in human flesh, I am open for you to show me that. I said, if you're willing to be willing, and if you're willing to open your heart, and I said, look, God is not a deceiver. He, he, he will show you. And if you're willing to say, Heavenly Father, look, wh whatever you have, I am willing for you to show me. I said, would you do that? If you are willing to be willing, God will show you whether or not this is indeed truth. But many people are unwilling but hundreds of you here this morning have taken God at his challenge, and it's led you to personal faith in Jesus Christ. And God has sobered drunks. He's released drug addicts. He's replaced immorality with integrity. He's replaced deceit with honesty. He has changed lives. But you have to be willing to be willing. Secondly, I learned from Romans, not directly from this passage, but I also learned, and this passage reminds me, that an unsubmissive heart will keep you from growing in Christ. Now, it's one thing about being not saved by Christ. It's another thing to grow in Christ. Now, this passage doesn't teach it directly. But when we come to Romans 11, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul takes this same truth and he's going to apply it to Christians. For instance, when we come to Romans 11 and verse 20, when he speaks to Gentiles, that's you and me, non-Jews, he'll say, quite right. They, the Jews, were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Then he warns, do not be conceited, but fear. The Living Bible renders the verse, yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. Now, sometimes Christians lose their humility, and because they lose their humility, they have knowledge without relationship. That was the problem with the unbelieving Jews. It was not that they didn't read the Scriptures. Man, they had Scriptures and passages memorized. They could tell you all about the Old Testament Scriptures, but they had lost their humility of heart, and because they lost their humility, they were blinded by their own self-righteousness and missed the fact that the Scriptures were shouting Jesus. And the same can happen to a believer, where a believer comes into Christ's salvation, and he's saved, and he's secured for heaven, but in his pride and in his arrogance... He becomes self-sufficient. And so Paul warns the church at Colossus. He said, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? By grace through faith. If you've been saved, there was a point in your life when you admitted that you could do nothing to earn heaven, that you were spiritually bankrupt, and you put your full weight and trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to save you. Well, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, now you walk in Him. You walk in that same humility and that same dependence, recognizing that apart from Him, I can do nothing. You say, well, how do I know whether or not I really have that humility and I'm walking in that dependence? Well, among other things, you will show it in the fact that you spend time with him. Do you remember when Jesus called the 12? This is what we read in Mark 3 and verse 14. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. Notice the order. First, they are with him. 
And then he sends them out to preach. Whenever I hire someone on our staff, we have a little meeting on the front end, and I say to him, listen, before you come on this campus in the morning, I expect you to have time alone with God because your time with the Lord takes precedence over your service for him. And I expect you to get up early just like anybody else. Somebody who has to be at work at 8 o'clock, they're up at 7 o'clock or 6.30 having their time with the Lord. And I expect you to have that time because I don't want you to serve without intimacy. But many a person has service without fellowship. They have ministry without relationship. They have knowledge without really walking with the Lord. Do you remember Martha? She was involved in a very important activity. She was involved in showing hospitality to the Lord Jesus and his disciples there in Bethany. And she began to complain because it seemed like she was doing all the work and Mary was just sitting there listening. And Jesus said, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. The Lord Jesus reminded her that in the midst of her service, she had lost her priority, that she had lost the humility of sitting at the feet of Christ. Service without fellowship, ministry without relationship. Third and finally, I'm reminded from this passage, if you read the Bible and you miss Christ, you've misread the Bible. If you read the Bible and you've missed the Lord Jesus, you've misread the Bible. Paul could not have said it any more plain. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. He's already told us that by way of introduction in Romans 1 and verse 2. He said there that Christ was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The prophets that Paul referred to in chapter 1 and verse 2 are the prophets found in the Holy Scriptures, or what we would call the Old Testament, or what Paul says here in verse 4 of chapter 10, Christ is the end of the Old Testament. He's the end of the law. And so wherever you read the Scriptures, you should find Christ. I don't have to go to the New Testament to find Christ. I can find Christ in the Old Testament. The whole Scripture is about the Lord Jesus. Martin Luther, in describing the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, gave this German couplet, as it's translated into English, it says, enfolded in the old, unfolded in the new. Enfolded in the old, that is, it's all contained in the old, but it's unfolded in the New Testament. Another person in the early part of this century said, the new is the old concealed. The old is by the new revealed. And so the entire Bible speaks of the Lord Jesus. Remember on that day in John 5, Jesus did a miracle. He healed a man with a paralysis at the pool of Bethesda. It's recorded in John chapter 5. And after he healed the man, the Jews were ripped at him because he did a miracle on the Sabbath day, and they said he did work. And Jesus said this to them. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me. The tragedy of the Pharisees is they studied the scripture and they thought that just studying the scripture somehow could provide a righteousness, a life that was pleasing to the Lord. And Jesus said, you're studying the scripture, but you're missing the meaning of the scripture. They bear witness of me. 
And so we've seen all the way through Romans, Paul repeatedly quoting the Old Testament. I've been making a catalog all the way through as I've been working through Romans. He quotes Genesis five times. He quotes Exodus four times, Leviticus two times, Deuteronomy five times, First Kings twice, Psalms 15 times, Proverbs twice, Isaiah 19 times, Ezekiel once, Hosea twice, Joel once, Nahum once, Habakkuk once, Malachi once. He's quoting the Old Testament time and time and time again, as we will see all the way through the end of this book. Why? Because the Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus. Christ himself quotes in his public ministry as recorded in the gospel from every major section of the Old Testament. Three major sections. He quotes from Moses, the first five books. He quotes from the writings and he quotes from the Psalms. Each major division in the Hebrew Bible. Now, most people, when they think of Jesus Christ, they think New Testament. But remember when Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me, the very first word of the New Testament had not yet been written. It is these that bear witness of me. Jesus is saying, you read the scriptures, but you don't get it. You're missing the types. You're missing the illustrations. You're missing the prophecies. They're totally blinded to what the scriptures say. And so then he will make this statement in John 5, 45. Listen, do not think, he said, that I will accuse you before the father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. Now, Moses, of course, when he makes this statement, has been dead for 1,400 years. But then he goes on to say, if you had believed Moses, the first five books of the Bible, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. Moses wrote all about the Lord Jesus. We studied in Genesis illustration after illustration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? And let me say to any college students here today, you take some religion course on the university. Let me say to any of the Marines here who will often move to other cities and other churches, you hear some preacher, you hear college students, some professor who denies Mosaic authorship, who says, well, Moses didn't really write the first five books. You know, there was a group of writers and someone compiled them all and they attributed it to Moses. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus believed Moses wrote those books. And he said, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you don't believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're not going to believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Satan knows that if he can create unbelief in the beginning of the Bible, he can destroy the Bible. And that's why he habitually attacks the book of Genesis. Then beginning with Moses, Luke recorded this. There on the Emmaus Road, Pastor Larry preached on it last week. Then beginning with Moses, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Notice what this verse does not say. It does not say he explained all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Notice carefully the placement of the word all. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
His statement informs us that all the scriptures in every book of the Old Testament, you will find the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will look carefully, you will either see him directly in the sunlight or out in the shadows. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he is the smitten rock. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet to come. In Joshua, he's the captain of the Lord of hosts. In Judges, he's the deliverer of the people of God. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In 1 and 2 Samuel, he is the anointed one and the king enthroned. In 1 and 2 Kings, he is the Lord God in his temple, filling it. He is the royal seed. In 1 Chronicles, he's the glorious king. In 2 Chronicles, he is the Lord who appears to Solomon. In Ezra, he is the Lord of our fathers. In Nehemiah, he is the restorer of Israel. In Esther, he is the advocate who pleads for his people. In Job, he is the redeemer who will stand upon the earth. In the book of Psalms, he's the good shepherd. In Proverbs, he's the embodiment of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the key that unlocks the significance to life. In the Song of Solomon, he's the heavenly bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, eternal father, suffering servant, the one pierced through for our iniquities, the virgin-born son of God. In Jeremiah, he is the divine potter who is molding and making lives. In Lamentations, he is the one who weeps over his people. In Ezekiel, he is the glory of God. In Daniel, he is the stone cut out of the mountain who will smite the nations of the world. In Hosea, he is the child called out of Egypt. In Joel, he is the Lord who roars out of Zion. In Amos, he is the judge of the nations. In Obadiah, he is the Lord and coming king. In Jonah, he is the witness to the Gentiles. In Micah, he is Bethlehem's baby, the ruler of Israel. In Nahum, he is the stronghold in the day of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is the Lord in his holy temple. In Zephaniah, he is the king of Israel. In Haggai, he is the Lord of hosts. In Zechariah, he is the Lord and coming king on a donkey, the one who will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. And in Malachi, he is the messenger in the sun with healing in his wings. It is all about him from Genesis to Malachi. <laughs> Prophecy is not primarily about something Prophecy is about someone, and that someone is the Lord Jesus. And that's precisely what the apostle is saying here in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It is all about Christ from beginning to end, and he needs to be all about you. Have you ever come to him? Have you ever trusted him? And if you have, have you lost your first love for him? Then come back today. Let's bow. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. And I pray today for someone listening to me. Maybe they're in some hospital bed. Maybe someone in prison. Maybe someone listening through some radio station somewhere, through some tape, through the internet. And they feel like they are so far away they cannot come back. They feel like they are so deep in sin they are unredeemable. They feel like they've made such a mess of their home, their family, that nothing good can happen. Help them to know, Father, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That no matter how deep our sin, no matter how evil our works, that you are able to save to the uttermost anyone who will call on your name. And so help today someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help someone today, Father, to say that in faith, knowing that the death and resurrection of Christ is sufficient. And if we've met him, 
Father, help us to walk in humility, to put our relationship with him above our service for him, to do what Mary did, to sit at his feet, and to learn and to love him. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled, Zealous but Rebellious, use the Search the Scriptures app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, we continue our look at Romans chapter 10 in a message entitled, Close, but Not Close Enough. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>